critics seem to be everywhere these days. We have movie critics, restaurant critics, literary critics. Just about everything that can be attempted can be criticized. Never mind that most of the movie critics have never made a movie, and most of the restaurant critics have never cooked a meal or certainly haven't opened a restaurant. And I suppose critics can be useful if you trust their taste, for example, in restaurants and in movies. I look at movie critics too, but I really have always liked what Teddy Roosevelt had to say about the subject. It's one of my favorite uh, quotes. He said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or how the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. You might think that if there was ever a person who would have been above criticism, that would have been the Apostle Paul, but we'd have been wrong about that. Paul had his critics both outside and inside the Christian community. Paul was a poor public speaker. He was selfish. He's all in it for himself. He was a coward. He's bold in his letters, but meek in person, just to name a few of the criticisms that came his way. And I suspect that at one level, the Apostle Paul really didn't care about his critics because he knew the truth, but he had to care when that criticism became harmful to his message and to his preaching because he cared deeply about the message and he cared deeply about the one for whom he labored. Because of this, from time to time, Paul is faced with a dilemma. Should I respond to these critics, or should I just let it go? In my experience, most of the time, it's the wisest thing just to let it go. In most cases, you don't want to respond to a critic because that just elevates them to a position that they really haven't earned and gives them a voice that they don't deserve. In my seminary years, I was an intern for Robert Leitner. And one of the things that I had to do is, well, I, I wrote some things for him. I researched some things for him. I, I, I taught a class or two for him. But one of, the, one of the lessons that he taught me in return was one that I'll never forget. And it has to do with this subject about critics. He had reviewed a, a book for a publication called Bibsack, which is the Dallas Seminary Journal. And the man that had written the, uh, the book had not really done that great of a job. Uh, Dr. Leitner had written a, a review of the book, and then, so actually he was the critic in that case, but he had written a review of the book, and it was published. And, and then the guy that was, had been criticized just wrote this scathing letter back to Dr. Leitner. I mean, just scathing letter back. So as I was in Dr. Leitner's office on this Thursday, that my last day at seminary that week before I came back down to Houston, he said, this is, this is the assignment I want you to do for this weekend. I want you to read this book. Then I, then I would like for you to read my review of the book. 
Then I'd like for you to read his response to my review, and then I would like you to write a response back to him based upon his response to my review. Now that would all have been fine and good, but I was pastoring the church at the time, and I was also working. That's a lot of work to do from that day till the next Tuesday, but I did it. I read the guy's book. I, I read Leitner's review of the book. I, I understood his review after having read it, because the guy was in way over his head. Then I read the guy's letter, and it was scathing. It was pr pretty ugly. And then I wrote out a letter in response for Dr. Leitner that he was to sign back to this guy who lived in Florida. And I spent a lot of time on the letter, and I really parsed it and edited it back and forth and did the best I could with it. And then I met with Dr. Leitner Tuesday at noon, as was our customer. He said, well, did you read the book? I said, yeah, I did. You read my review? He said, I said, yeah, I did. And he said, well, did you read his letter to me? And I said, well, yeah, I did. He said, well, did you write something for me? And I said, well, yeah, I did. And I, here it is. So he read it. It was a one-pager. I like to be succinct when I'm really getting <laughs> succinct when I'm getting it onto somebody. So it was, I wrote a scathing letter back to him, quite frankly. And Leitner read it, and has, as he would do sometimes, he went, okay, all right. And then he put the letter back on his desk and says, so what do you think we should do? I said, really, I don't think you should mail the letter. I think you should let it go. Just ignore it. He said, do you? And he said, <laughs> I said, yeah, that's really what I think you should do. He said, I, that's... That's what I intended to do. I never intended to respond to the guy. But I wanted you to see, to go through this exercise, to see that sometimes you don't want to respond to somebody because it elevates them and their own importance and the importance of somebody else. And sometimes it's best just to let it go, just to ignore it, to let it go. Well, with the Apostle Paul, there were sometimes he just needed to ignore it also and let it go. There were other times, though, in his ministry that he felt like he had to respond to criticism because it had the potential to harm his message. And if it had the potential to harm his message, it had the potential to harm the people that Paul was ministering to. And since this is not a light thing, this is not a discussion about philosophy over coffee at Starbucks, this is a life and death matter, the message mattered. And the message actually mattered much more than the apostle, but the message mattered. And if, and if these critics of Paul could trash his character to such a degree that it damaged the message, then something had to be done. You've heard it said probably, it's not the man, it's the message. I probably even have said that from time to time. It's not the man, it's the message. And that's true up to a point. But the Bible's very clear about the character of the one giving the message. And if the character of the one giving the message can be called into a question, then certainly the message is going to be called into question. So the Apostle Paul had to answer the critics that were all over Paul in Corinth were some people that Paul couldn't tolerate. He, he couldn't tolerate the criticism itself. If this was just about him, he could just laugh it off. Because, can, well, this will be a good trivia. If you can name, well, let's just do two of the critics. If you can just name two of the critics that were in Corinth, uh, Will Johnson is going to donate his, his uh, SUV to you this afternoon. That, that a good deal? You feel comfortable with that? You feel comfortable? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> all right. The, the point is, you, you know the Apostle Paul, you know Moses, you know John, you know Peter, you know, you know a lot of people, but you don't know the names of these critics. That's the point. No, no they're, they're anonymous to history now, except for maybe some New Testament scholars that have dug them out. But really, they're gone. But Paul still had to respond. Now, the reason 
This is a message that can speak to all of us. You don't have to be in ministry for this to speak to you. All of us receive criticism from time to time. Some of it's from our co-workers, some of it's from our bosses, some of it's from our spouses, some of it's from our friends. And we've got to know when to put up, when to shut up. We need to know when to respond and when to just keep our mouth shut. We've got to know when to throw water on something and when just to back off and let it burn itself out. So this message on criticism and critics is not just for the Apostle Paul. It's not just for people in ministry. It's for everybody because nobody gets through this life immune from this unfortunate situation. So he couldn't tolerate the situation. Now before we get into the text itself, just one more quick word about critics and criticism. There are certainly times when criticism is valid. I hope you would see that. My daughter was recently at, this last week, was at a, a conference on political science up in Chicago. She presented a paper. After the paper is presented at those kind of scholarly conferences, people critique you. And they say, this is something I think you could do to make your paper better. And you welcome that kind of criticism because it helps you to present your paper better the next time or to have it not, not quite so verbal when it gets published. Certainly there are times when criticism works. I've been at clothing stores where I thought something looked really good. The guy said, no, it doesn't work on you. You cannot wear that color. Not unless you go out and get a better suntan. You're not wearing that color. You know, I mean, I, I can't, you notice I don't wear tan suits because my, my coloring, just the gray hair just doesn't go with it. At least that's what Butch told me at M. Penner. So I'm, I'm assuming Butch knows what he's talking about. I didn't mind that criticism because he kept me from buying something that I shouldn't have been buying. Other people could do it. I couldn't do it. So if, you've, if you really feel the need to criticize, go ahead and do it, but make sure your criticism is valid and necessary, and might I ha might add, helpful before you do it. In verses 1 through 11 of chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I'm present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divine power, divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave us for building you up and not for destroying you, I shall not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, what we are in word and by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present." Now, if you've been tracking along with us, you'll notice there's a very serious change in tone in these verses from the previous two chapters. In fact, really, from the, from the, from the epistle as a whole, we moved from a, a really kind of a, a warm-hearted appeal 
to giving in chapters 8 and 9 to a rather intense condemnation of his critics throughout chapters 10 through 13. In fact, the tone is so different in chapters 10 through 13 that some scholars believe that these chapters weren't even part of the original letter, that they were part of maybe that severe letter that we've talked about that somehow later on got attached to this letter. Now, that's not my view. I don't hold that. But, but I just want you to see that people who study this letter in, intensely recognize that big of a change from chapters 8 and 9, actually from chapters 1 to 9, all the way to right now. I, there's a distinct tone here that's, that's not like what we've seen before. To remind you just very quickly, in chapters 1 through 7 of this epistle, Paul explained his conduct and described the exercise of his apostolic authority. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we just spent several weeks on those chapters, He's encouraging the Corinthians to follow through on this previously pledged gift to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And now in chapters 10 through 13, the third and final section of this letter, he defends himself and his apostolic authority. And you, you can't help but describe the tone in these last four chapters as aggressive. It might have been tender, it might have been encouraging in chapters 8 and 9, but it's aggressive now. And I guess that just teaches us that even under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, there are sometimes when aggressiveness works. But what we're going to see here today is something very unique in human interaction, and that is humility that's aggressive. Paul humbly but aggressively defends himself against his opponents. He's humble, but he's aggressive at the same time. Now, you need to be under the ministry of the Holy Spirit for, to, to really pull this off, but that's what he does, humbly but aggressively defends himself against his opponents. And all of this is to prepare the Corinthians for a visit that he's about to make to them when he comes and actually collects this offering. Now, we can't be dogmatic as to specifically who the critics were. New Testament scholars differ on that. But I think that we can probably say fairly safely that they came from within the church or were at least peripherally involved with the church at Corinth. In other words, these aren't unbelievers that are standing outside of the church criticizing the Apostle Paul. These are people that have come inside the church. So he's being criticized from the inside this time. Not that he didn't have his detractors from the outside. Once he switched from being a strict Pharisee who condemned and persecuted Christians to perhaps someone who would spread Christianity around the world in a greater way than anybody else ever has, certainly those outside the church condemned him. But this is condemnation that's coming from inside. And don't you know that's the kind of condemnation or the kind of criticism that can hurt more than that which comes from outside. And, and you know that. You know the person or persons that can hurt you the most deeply are the ones that you love the most. And if you have criticism that comes within a church family, that's going to hurt. If you have criticism that comes even from the Christian community, that's going to hurt even more than outside. These people were criticizing him from within. And among the things that the critics were saying and that the people were buying was that Paul was a coward. That's not a very nice thing to say, but they were buying it. The critics were saying it. And the people in Corinth were buying it. That he was a very bold letter writer. He could write a great memo. But when he was personally with him, he was timid and cowardly. You know, we think of timid Timothy as being criticized for timidity. I mean, no, Paul was criticized for being timid also. 
There were two Pauls, they would say, the bold Paul and the timid Paul. You don't know what you're going to get at any given moment. We'll read verse 1 again with me. Now, I, Paul, myself, urge you by the mercies or by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. You see the tone change. If, if you're listening, you see it, this is dripping with sarcasm. That's been ordained by the Holy Spirit, by the way, but it's dripping with sarcasm. But Paul, although he's aggressive, chooses a unique approach to this unfair criticism. If I had been criticized in this way, I might be tempted to go off and blast these folks. You think I'm a coward? Is that what you think? Well, let's step outside and let's just see who the coward is. Now, you wouldn't do that because you're a pleasant and nice person, but that's what some of you would do. A couple of you would. I know at least one person that would. Step outside. Let's see who the coward is. But that's not what Paul does because that would really kind of feed into them. They would just step back and say, see, I knew he was unstable. Look at that guy. <laughs> not, to, not to mention you pushed him to it. But yeah, you know, what's your problem? I, I didn't know you. Good night. When I was in the ninth grade, I had this kid. I was new at school. They always pick on new kids at school. And this guy that I would describe him kind of as a Neanderthal, I don't mean to criticize his appearance because that's what's going to happen here, but he was kind of a Neanderthal-looking guy. He did lead some credence to Darwin's theory, but he, kept, he, would come up, he would come up and he was just a cowboy. That's, I mean, he was just a cowboy, and a real cowboy. Wyoming has real cowboys. And every time he would see me, he would just punch me as hard as he could right in the shoulder. Not in the face, not in the stomach, but, but in the shoulder. And then he would do the things you did when you were kids. Remember, you'd put that knuckle out so it would bruise more. I don't know what that was all about. But I would come home with bruises all up and down my, my arm. And it was just kind of, it, it was uncomfortable. And I, I had him in one particular class. It was a shop class. And it, was, it happened day after day after day. And finally, the guy hit me one more time. I said, okay, step outside. Let's go. We're not, we're not, we're not punching each other in the shoulder anymore. I never punched him. We're going to punch where it hurts. Let's go on outside. And he said, what's your problem, man? I mean, what's, what's the matter with you? As if, as if the whole thing was coming from me when he started it. You see the point? So some people can drive you, you to it, and that's what Paul's trying to avoid. It's them backing up and saying, whoa, whoa, but whoa, Paul. I thought you were crazy. Well, no, he doesn't do that. He does something incredibly unique. And it's instructive for us, too. This is what I want you to see. This will help you in your own interpersonal conflicts. I know some of you have never had an interpersonal conflict, but most of us have. And if you're married, I don't care how good your marriage is, you've had at least one interpersonal conflict. It's over some time over the last 40 or 50 years, if you, if you still have your memory with you. <laughs> and we need to learn how to handle these interpersonal conflicts if we're going to be able to succeed in relationships that really need to succeed. Because listen, all, all joking aside, all relationships have interpersonal conflicts from time to time because you've got two people with two old sin natures. It's going to happen. So when we have an interpersonal conflict come up, how might we get through it? That's one of the things we can see from what the Apostle is going to do in the first verse. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You see, what he does is he immediately moves to humility. On, on his own behalf, he doesn't ask them to be humble. First, he's, asking, he's saying, listen, I'm going to approach you in humility. And if you end up having problems with husbands, wives, 
children, parents, or adult children and parents anyway, among friends, the first thing that might help is if we adopt a humble attitude in the situation. The reason we did the scripture reading we did this morning, the primary reason I wanted you to see that verse says, keep having this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He was God. Yet he thought our needs were more important than his own, so he set aside his needs for the moment and came down and provided for our salvation. Well, that's what Paul's going to do here. He's appealing to Christ and to Christ's humility. And he's saying, I'm going to approach this with humility. Now, it's going to be aggressive. You can be aggressive and still humble at the same time. You don't have to be a punching bag. You don't have to be a throw rug that people walk all over. You can make your point. But it needs to be done in humility and in love. And that's what Paul's going to do. So he says, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You see, Paul wasn't what the Corinthian opponents expected, and Jesus wasn't what the Jews of the first century expected. The Jews of the first century expected a much different Messiah. In fact, we have records of people in the first century, Judas the Galilean being one, that were Messiah-like figures that came with a sword, and they, they came to try to conquer Rome militarily. They wanted to... to Establish a revolt, and he wasn't the only one. There were others that the New Testament actually mentions another one too, that were put down. The Jews were looking for a Messiah that would be a political delivery. We need a hero, as that rock song said. They were looking for a hero, and then along comes Jesus and said, "Blessed are the peacemakers." And the people in Jerusalem were saying, "What? What do you mean, blessed are the peacemakers? This guy doesn't fit our grid." Jesus led with his humility. Yes, he's going to come again. He'll still be in humility, but he's going to come with a sword the second time. But what they didn't see was he was bringing them something that they didn't see they had a need for. They needed salvation before they needed political deliverance. So Jesus shocked them by his humility. And Paul is going to shock the Corinthians by his humility here. He's going to be bold, but he's also going to be humble. So he appeals to the meekness or the humility of Christ, and then he, he is a bit sarcastic here. We could call it irony, but it's the same thing. I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. You know what Paul's saying? He's kind of winking at him saying, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, I, I know what you said. Just, just so we're clear here, I, I heard all about it. Then in verse 2, I ask that when I'm present, I may not be bold with confidence, with the confidence which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. You see, in our culture, and it seems as though in the culture of the first century, the Greco, Judean, the whole, the whole culture, the Greco, Roman, and Judean cultures, humility wasn't really lifted up as a great virtue. Humility was looked upon as a weakness in most people's eyes. And isn't it today, too? You see many of the, uh, the ball players get the multi-million dollar contracts because they're exercising great humility. <laughs> nah, it's the ones that are running their mouth. And that are also good, but they're running their mouth that are getting the biggest contracts. I haven't seen Andre Johnson here from Houston, Texas. I haven't seen him on a whole lot of national commercials. One of the most humble guys out there. I mean, he, he really is. He's also one of the best ball players out there, too. Absolutely one of the best ball players, but he doesn't get any national stuff because he's humble. He doesn't do dances after his touchdowns. You know, he doesn't spike the ball over the goalpost. He doesn't talk trash to his opponents. He's a humble guy. 
I mean, a really nice guy. But our culture doesn't value that. I don't know how many people in Houston even value him as much as we should because he's a great representative of our city. I think, personally, a great representative. But people don't value humility. They look at it as a weakness. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, go back to Christ. If you don't value humility, look at him. He was humble. And humility is not considering somebody else to be better than you. I think that's a very poor rendering in Philippians that some translations have. It really means that you're considering somebody else's needs as more important than your own. Because Jesus, when he's dying on the cross for me, he didn't think that I was better than him. He never th he's never thought that I was better than him because he knows the truth. But he did consider my needs as more important than his, than his own. So this whole humility, meekness thing is what is the Sermon on the Mount kind of issue too. And Paul appeals to it to begin with. And he, he's just saying in verse 2, we have a subtlety. The opponents of Paul are going to accuse him of walking according to the flesh, which is another way of saying that he's relying upon himself and not God. But Paul's saying from the get-go, no, I'm going to rely on God here. We'll settle this, but I'm going to do it God's way. He's not relying upon himself. Nothing can be further from the truth in his life. It's not his first choice to even confront these critics. He's going to do it, but he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to come and have to be bold in front of them, start throwing people out of the church. That's not what he wants. He wants them to correct the behavior before he gets there. Now, he could. He had the apostolic authority to do it. But he doesn't want to do that. Sometimes we get the wrong idea about the Apostle Paul. He was maybe cold-hearted or harsh. He wasn't. I think the Apostle Paul was a tender guy. I really do. I think the Apostle Paul would shock us if we could see his tenderness. But he knew when he had to make a stand. And this is one of those places where he's got to make it. Now, verses 3 through 6 are one long sentence in the Greek text. And the Apostle here... Paul is going to turn to a military metaphor to make his point. We're going to be talking about warring and weapons and destruction and fortresses. By the way, that's one of the things that the great thinkers and debaters did of Paul's era, was use a lot of military metaphor. And I'm not sure exactly why Paul did it, but I, I really doubt that they would have caught the subtlety here. They're criticizing him for not being a great orator, but he's using the same techniques that the great orators used. In these verses, in verses 3 through 6, Paul says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Oh, whoa, wait a minute. That's aggressive. He's using fighting terminology here. He's, he realizes that this is a serious issue. This is a fight. We don't war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations. You hear the terminology? The fight, these are fighting words. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive, another military term, to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. He acknowledges that he lives in the flesh. I acknowledge that. Hope you do too. We're going to live in the flesh until the day we leave this body. And this flesh has an old sin nature. We can't get around that. We live in the flesh. Everybody does. But we're, he's not living by means of the flesh. It's a distinction that he makes also in his letter to the Galatians. He lives in this body, but he doesn't operate under the flesh or under the old 
sin natures. And he's not going to win this battle, this war with his opponents, by means of the flesh or by secular technique. And he's not going to fight according to their rules. It's going to frustrate them, but he's not going to do it. The writer of the Proverbs said, A gentle answer turns away wrath. Have you ever tried that? It's remarkable. You ought to sometime. Somebody's really, really upset with you. And it may be, again, somebody really close to you. It may be somebody you don't really know. It may be a customer. I don't know how many of you handle customer complaints, but I've seen it handled beautifully recently. If somebody's really, really upset, somebody comes out just with a, I'm sorry about that. Let's see if we can't fix that for you. Uh, Our tailor's right back here. They can take care of that. And if they can't take care of it, we're going to get you another one. You think somebody's going to keep complaining then? No, probably not. No, listen, I'm sorry that we were late for your appointment, but we'll work that out. Let's get you right back. Let me, let me take care of you right now. You know, pe- people respond to that proverb, a gentle answer turns away wrath. So he's not going to fight according to their rules. He's going to fight according to biblical rules and rules of the Holy Spirit. And the weapons he uses, again, to use the military metaphor, are weapons that come from God, not man. And guess what? God's weapons will destroy man's weapons every time. It's not going to be any contest at all. No contest. When God's weapons go up against man's weapons, God's weapons win. Now this is easy for us to sit back and look at from the distance of 2,000 years, say that was fine for the Apostle Paul, but I promise you this is going to work in your interpersonal relationship issues also. And I was joking a minute ago, but I was serious too, I know we all have interpersonal relationship issues. Maybe some more often than others, but I know there are people weighed down here today with those issues. I mean, there are people weighed down with them. So listen carefully. In humility, that's the key, Paul will destroy any idea, whether it's sophisticated or not, that's raised up against the knowledge of God. He's got to. It's a matter of life and death. He's clearly claiming that the criticism of him at this point is unwarranted. And those who are promoting this criticism fall into the false teacher category of 2 Peter. He's aggressive in his defense, but he's humble with his aggressiveness. And that's okay. An aggressive defense doesn't mean an arrogant one. As we move through this passage, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing. And I think that's an ironic term also. Because, see, one of the criticisms of Paul that we saw earlier in the letter is that he can't hang. You cannot hang with the philosophers in Athens. You're an intellectual moron compared to the philosophers in Athens. And so he's throwing this in. You know, I'm going to destroy even those lofty ideas, even when you use the big words, when you could have used the smaller one. I'm going to destroy that because it's important. I'm going to do it with humility, but it's important. He just insists on fighting the right way. And I, my prayer is that when, when we have these interpersonal conflicts, we'll handle it the right way. If you handle it the right way, you're going to get through it. If you shove it right back at somebody, you're not. One of the blessings of having a, a mixed church, a mixed generational church, which, which we have, is that we have people in their teens in here. We have people in their 90s in here. We have people that are just dating. We have people that have been married for 65 years. And one of, the, one of the things that makes a church healthy is that when you have people that have been married for 60 plus years, you can go to them and say, how, how did you stay married for that long? 
and they'll give you an answer. And I think one of the answers is going to be, you're not going to stay, stay married that long by throwing back anger with anger. Somebody has got to eventually to return anger with, the, with gentleness or with humility. And that's what Paul is modeling here, even though he's aggressive in the process. Sometimes we have to be aggressive, but we can still be nice about it. I guess that's a way to put it in, in, the, in terms I think we can all agree upon. As this long sentence ends in verse 6, he stands ready like a soldier to use his authority with severity, if necessary. This phrase, punish all disobedience, could be personalized to be understood. Punish any who refuse to obey. I can do it if I have to. Just don't make me, please. Don't make me. He's not shy, but he's also not weak. And it's a huge mistake in Paul to mistake humility for weakness. It's a huge mistake in anybody to mistake humility for weakness. Moses was humble, wasn't he? But he was anything but weak. He was one of the greatest leaders of all time. But he was a humble man. This punishment that he's referring to here will reach its fullest form when the Corinthians separated themselves from the troublemakers. You know, we've talked before about association, blessing by association, and Abraham is the model for that. People are blessed by association with other people. The Jews are blessed by association with Father Abraham, and that's a true biblical principle, but there's also another principle called cursing by association. You know, if, if, you're, if you're hanging with the wrong group, then you might just get the bullet that was intended for somebody else or the fire that was intended for somebody else. And so we can be either blessed by association or cursed by association. And this punishment's going to come to its fullest form when the Corinthians have separated themselves from these people so the punishment can, come, can be guided by God toward the people that really have it coming to them. The good guys in Corinth, if I could use that term, would, would do well to separate them from the bad guys in Corinth. And then finally, this last portion of this lesson for today, you're looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone's confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Paul's going to say something very similar to this later in the letter, and he's going to just say, I'm, I'm, this is crazy. I shouldn't even have to be defending myself that I'm the one that's in Christ. These guys are saying they're messengers of God. Well, of course, I'm a messenger of God. There's actually two times the word himself is used in English in verse 7. I, I think you see that. If anyone is confident in himself that he's Christ, let him consider again this within himself. He's saying if anybody's self-centered, it's you guys. It's the opponents. It's not me. I'm not the one that's being self-centered. We can't, again, because we can't say specifically who these opponents were, it's hard to reconstruct exactly what they're saying, but they may have been implying here that they're the ones that are rightly related to God, not the Apostle Paul. That's easy to do when Paul's not there. He's just saying, you guys need to get this thing worked out before I get there. He's not going to challenge their salvation, but he is implying right back that their view of him is self-centered. That's the two himselves that are mentioned there. And he's affirming that he's rightly related to Christ. Verse 8 continues the thought, For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave us for building you up and not for destroying you, I shall not be put to shame. Jesus had given him this authority. He didn't appoint himself, unlike the opponents who derived their authority to challenge Paul of themselves. God didn't give them the authority to challenge Paul. They gave themselves that a challenge. And here's a major difference 
between Paul and his opponents. Paul's aim was to build up the church. Their aim was to destroy Paul. Two entirely different motivations. In that vein, Paul's letters were not intended to terrify, but to edify. On the other hand, the critic's message was not intended to edify, but to destroy Paul's reputation and his ministry. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. Then in verses 10 through 12, or verses 10 and 11 rather, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance or personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech is contemptible. Then he concludes by saying, let, us, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word and letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed. We're the same person. Whether I'm writing to you from Macedonia, or whether I'm in front of you in Corinth, I'm the same guy, folks. Don't make this huge mistake. Of course, verse 10, that's totally unfair, isn't it? This is their criticism of him. He presents an idea and this is what they say. His presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. You know what kind of answer that is to somebody's argument? Remember when your kids, people say your mother dresses you funny? You know, that's a real good comeback, isn't it? That really helps us to settle this argument. They're supposed to be the smart ones and this is the best they can come up with? That he's not really that good looking and he can't preach his way or can't speak his way out of a paper bag. Of course, that wasn't true, I don't think. Who knows what he looked like. But who cares what he looked like? If you've got to resort to criticizing somebody's appearance that they can't help to make your point, you're not the smart one in the room. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. It's a logical fallacy. And it's not all that different today when you see an atheist or a skeptic come across an argument they can't answer. They often go after the person rather than the argument. They've got to. They can't go after the argument. We call this an ad hominem attack. And ad hominem, atta ad hominem attacks are logical fallacies, and they're ultimately self-defeating. And they're equivalent to admitting you lost the argument. If you're not coming back at them with an idea, you've lost the argument. Or even in between husbands and wives. Let me, let me just say this because it happens so many times. I'm not speaking about anybody personally, please. But we all know what happens. You're in the middle of an argument. You bring up something that happened 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. That's just a deflection technique, isn't it? That's all it is. You didn't win the argument. You just admitted I lost. I got nothing to say here. You know, you know where were you? Why would you come home six hours late? Well, I remember back in 84. You were gone for the whole Super Bowl. Said you went to Randall's shopping. Now, where were you? Well, that was, that was 30 years ago. We're talking about today. Where were you today? You know, I was worried about you. <laughs> if I got that answer, I wouldn't, I would be a little nervous about where they were for the last six hours. Logical fallacies, especially ad hominem arguments, have no place in intelligent or civil debate. They really don't. Has no place here. Then finally, Paul says, don't worry, what we are in our letters, we are or we will be in person. It's interesting how he shifted the pronouns and we're just about finished, so I don't have time to, to dwell on that. But in the beginning, he's talking about me, I. At the end, he's changed to an editorial we here. When we come, we're not hypocrites. We're, who we are in our letters, we are going to be in, in person. As we close, let me just say there are a couple things that I think we have to take from this passage. I mentioned, I mentioned some of the nuances throughout the sermon today, but let me, let me see if I can sum them up in this way. Just two things, really. The first is 
as we encounter things where we're tempted, we need to be careful with criticism. Unless you know, emphasize, unless you know that you're right and that you're convicted by the Holy Spirit that the criticism will ultimately further the plan of God, it might be best to keep it to yourself. Unless you know you're right and, not or, but unless you know you're right and you're convicted by the Holy Spirit that this is actually going to be helpful to this individual and then ultimately to God's plan, then it might be better to think twice about the criticism. The second thing, it's a challenge to know as one who's being criticized whether you should personally respond to the critic. There's one thing I think you should keep in mind. Is the criticism of such a nature that it's going to harm the message being proclaimed, or maybe on a different level, level, your personal Christian testimony? If it's going to harm your message, or if it's going to harm your testimony, which is the same thing, really, then respond. But respond in humility not in anger. And if you can't do that, if you can only find yourself responding to a critic in anger, maybe it's best to leave it alone. Well, we're going to study more about this defense over the next few weeks, but for today, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I do want to set aside the last moment or two that we have here today and, and make sure that everyone here today understands that God loved you so much he loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. When a Philippian jailer a long time ago asked the Apostle Paul, what do I need to do to be saved? The answer was, believe in the Lord Jesus. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you happen to have come in this morning and you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, I want you to think about that. First of all, we have to be incredibly honest and transparent with ourselves and recognize that we need a Savior. We can't be good enough to get to God. The Bible says that, but you already knew it even before the Bible said it. I know you did. None of us can be good enough to satisfy a perfectly holy Creator. And maybe you've been saying for a long time when somebody asks you if you're going to heaven, well, I, I hope so. I'm trying to be good enough. But deep down, you know you can't be good enough. And deep down, you know that hope is not a very strong hope. But if you'd like to have a strong, confident expectation today, you can have it because of what the Word of God says. If you'll place your faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, you can confidently say you're going to go to heaven because you won't be going on, your, on the basis of anything that you've done, but on the basis of what He did for you. And when you get to heaven, if someone should ask you why you're there, it won't be because of you. You can just turn to our Lord and say it's because of Him. I'm with Him. That's why I'm here. If you'd like to talk about that more afterwards, I'd love to stay and, and chat with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson today from the Apostle Paul on critics and criticism and how, to, how it might be handled. Help us when we encounter similar situations in our life to handle it better than we have in the past, to use a gentle answer to turn away wrath, to exercise humility and not arrogance, and be aggressive when we have to, but to be careful with our choice of criticism and to be careful with our responses. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.